Hello and welcome to We Go Way Back, the podcast that goes back in time to find stories that help us understand today. I'm Alex Jones. I'm Kit Heron. And I'm Tom Gordon-Martin. And today, Kit takes us to a neo-Nazi rally in the 1970s and discusses what it says about free speech today. In 1977, a small neo-Nazi group tried to hold a demonstration outside the town hall of a Chicago suburb called Skokie. You might think that would be unpleasant enough, but a significant proportion of Skokie's population was Jewish. Many were survivors of the Holocaust. The people of Skokie said no to the demonstration. The Nazis said this violated their rights under the First Amendment to the US Constitution. No lesser group than the American Civil Liberties Union, famed for their defence of civil rights groups, took on the Nazis' cause as a freedom of speech case. With me to discuss the National Socialist Party of America versus the village of Skokie is Professor Philippa Strum, Global Fellow at the Woodrow Wilson International Centre for Scholars, and author of When the Nazis Came to Skokie, Freedom for the Speech We Hate. If we could get started, um, can you tell me about the the neo-Nazi group and why Skokie for their demonstration? Well, the case took place in the 1970s and the party involved was a group that called itself the National Socialist Party of America, which actually had nothing to do with socialism, but was a neo-Nazi group that was anti-Black, anti-Semitic, anti all kinds of things. And it gave itself that name because it was copying it from Hitler, basically. It was a fringe group, but it wanted to have a demonstration in the city of Chicago, which is where the group was based. And the city of Chicago, knowing that there was a possibility of violence, if that group was allowed to demonstrate passed an ordinance that required any group that wanted to demonstrate to post a bond of about $250,000. Now remember, this is the 1970s, so the equivalent today would be over $1 million. And this applied to any group that wanted to demonstrate. So it was not only the neo-Nazis who were kept from demonstrating in Chicago, it was also the Martin Luther King Coalition. And so of course, the uh, neo-Nazi party found lawyers in the ACLU to go into court and question that because the first amendment to the American constitution says that the government shall not abridge the freedom of speech, which includes the freedom to demonstrate. So that's the background. So since they were precluded from demonstrating in Chicago, the question for them was what to do. These group, this group basically had 
no program, no big following. All they had was the ability to get public relations, get some kind of uh, public attention, which is what they wanted to do. So what they did was send a letter to every suburb of Chicago saying, we want to come demonstrate in your town. And every suburb of Chicago simply ignored that with the exception of one, and that was Skokie, Illinois. And one of the reasons that Skokie did not ignore it was that Skokie was the home to many survivors of the Holocaust and their families. And so it was very aware of what could happen, the harm that it felt could be done to some of its citizens if the neo-Nazis were allowed to demonstrate. So Skokie, uh, Skokie sent back a letter in effect saying, well, you're not welcome here. And also passed a series of regulations that were somewhat similar to the ones that had been passed in Chicago. So they included a ban on marching in uniforms, which the neo-Nazis wanted to do. They wanted to not uh, march and uh, demonstrate in those Nazi uniforms, but also again, requiring an upfront payment of a bond, in this case, $300,000, which uh, today would be about a million three hundred thousand dollars And so that was obviously impossible for them to raise. They turned to the American Civil Liberties Union for help. And who were the American yeah. Civil Liberties Union? Um, the American Civil Liberties Union is an organization that was founded in 1920 in the United States to protect, defend, and further civil liberties and civil rights, and basically focused in its early years on the First Amendment, on that right to speech. Mm -hmm. And so this was a not a difficult case for the ACLU branch in Chicago to take. And the reason was they understood, as I indicated earlier, that if you could have this kind of uh, law, these, these regulations that would keep out the neo-Nazis, they would also keep out the people like Martin Luther King. And so the basic approach was, we don't want the government deciding who can speak, who can demonstrate in our country. And so the ACLU took the case. At that time, uh, the ACLU was, as it has since been, made up of a substantial number of people of all faiths, but a good portion of whom were Jewish and are Jewish. And so it was a little bit difficult for some of the officers at the ACLU and some of the members of the ACLU to accept the fact that they were going to be in court fighting for the right of neo-Nazis, but ultimately they said, it's the principle that it's issued here. And so they went ahead. And what they did was um, they brought suit in state court asking that the uh, group be allowed to demonstrate in Skokie. Um, your listeners may or may not know that in the United States, we have two systems of courts. One is the state court, uh, which is separate for each state of the union. 
and a federal system. And that becomes important later on, which is the only reason that I mentioned it here. <laughs> but um, the uh, trial judge in the case granted an injunction to the town of Skokie, which means a ruling saying no, the neo-Nazis are prevented from uh, demonstrating here. And at that point, the ACLU took an appeal to the next level of state court where they were turned down and took an appeal then to the Supreme Court of Illinois where they were turned down again. But they were turned down without the court granting a full hearing for them to present a case. The court simply got the papers from both sides and decided on that basis. And so an appeal was made to the United States Supreme Court saying, this is wrong, at least you have to give us a hearing if you're gonna interfere with our speech right. And the Supreme Court of the United States said, yes, you're right. And sent the case back to the Illinois courts. And before you go on, um, you mentioned about the ACLU, you know, a number of, a significant number of their members being Jewish. It's correct, isn't it, that the, the sort of leading lawyer for the ACLU in this case was also Jewish himself, and yet he... Oh, absolutely. David Goldberger, who became, I think, the real hero of the case, um, he had absolutely no hesitation about checking the case, and he suffered for it. He, uh, his, his family home was vandalized. His parents heard him damned in synagogue. Ultimately, he ended up moving out of the state of Illinois well after the, the case was well over. So it was very difficult, um, obviously. And uh, R.A. Nair, who headed the organization, the national organization based in New York, himself was a refugee, a German Jewish refugee, had no qualms whatsoever about taking the case. And these were and uh, are, because they're both happily still alive, men of principle. Hmm. I suppose it's, it's just interesting. I suppose the whole thing is very interesting because, uh, because of that kind of juxtaposition, I suppose, of, of their own personal experiences and their, their principles and how those diverged. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you know, this whole notion of freedom of speech, which is, is greater in the United States than in any other country in the world, I should say that uh, we're an outlier in that sense. Um, it's kind of a difficult concept. I mean, the notion that you have to gut a bat for ideas that are absolutely abhorrent to you, or the notion that you have to sit there and listen to things that are psychologically harmful to you, that kind of runs counter to the way human beings normally operate. And so it's sometimes a difficult idea to defend. Mm. One of the interesting things that I found was one of the exceptions to the right to free assembly in the First Amendment to the Constitution um, is that uh, if, if an assembly is um, considered to be fighting words, I think is the phrase. Um, is it not interesting that, you know, a neo-Nazi 
demonstration that to me that seems like it could be considered an example of fighting words and but yet that wasn't considered the case is that right yes well actually the fighting words doctrine that came out of a much earlier supreme court case has been pretty much abandoned and the doctrine now as at the time of, of skokie was if you are speaking in a way that um pushes and if, if you're inciting people to do something that's criminal if you're inciting people to violence and it's an immediate incitement then that can be stopped and that's of the part of the right of assembly too if for example i'm talking to a group of people and i say i really think you know congress is terrible these days we should go march on congress don't you think all right, that's one thing. If I say, and I'm sitting here as I am now in Washington, D.C., and I say to a group of people, all right, Congress is doing something terrible. Let's take our guns and go now. That's incitement, and that's illegal. Right, okay. So because the neo-Nazis hadn't planned to take weapons on their demonstration, um, that that was part of the reason why it was considered not to be inciting violence. Well, no, it wasn't just the absence of weapons. It was because what they asked to do, and this somehow get lost in the press coverage of the case, what they asked to do was hold the equivalent of a picket line in front of the town hall of Skokie. So they were going to march around in that little picket line, and that was it. So they weren't inciting. They were going to march around and they were going to hold signs that said horrible racist things. Um, but that was it. They weren't going to say, come on, follow us. Let's take over the town hall or whatever. There was no incitement at all. There was just this horrible purveying of unacceptable speech, unacceptable ideas to most of us, I think, who were civilized human beings. Sure. Okay, thanks for explaining that. Um, so let's let's get back to the to the case then. Um, so what happened next after um, the super, the U.S. Supreme Court, um, you know, said it, the case had to go back to Illinois. Okay, so it went back to the uh, Illinois Supreme Court, um, and the Illinois Supreme Court sent it back to the intermediate level. Court. Anyway, what happened there was that the intermediate level court said, okay, you can have your demonstration, but you can't demonstrate in your uniforms. And ultimately, the Supreme Court of Illinois said, no, uh, you, can't, you can't do that. There are all kinds of uniforms in the world. The Boy Scouts like to march in uniforms, for example. Um, you, we just have to strike down the injunction. And so it looked as if there was, after all, going to be a demonstration in the town of Skokie, in this town with so many Holocaust survivors who brought their own case into court saying that they would be psychologically damaged by the ability of the neo-Nazis to demonstrate. Now, I would like to emphasize, because again, this didn't really get covered in the press accounts, that Again, they were just going to demonstrate in front of the town hall. They weren't going to march through the neighborhoods where the Holocaust survivors lived. They weren't going to do anything of that kind. So it was just, they never asked for anything other than a peaceful demonstration, however obnoxious their ideas were. 
And so, as I say, it looked as if they were going to be able to get there. At that point, the town of Skokie's residents began to organize and people around the country began to organize to put together what would be a counter demonstration showing the neo-Nazis, no, you're not welcome here. Your ideas are not acceptable anywhere, not only in Illinois, but anywhere else as well. What kept that demonstration from happening was that all of a sudden, the court in Chicago decided that after all, the neo-Nazis could have their demonstration in Chicago which remember was the thing they wanted in the first place. So they gave up the idea of Skokie and they went to Chicago to demonstrate. And ultimately they did have a demonstration there. There were a couple of dozen neo-Nazis who got so scared at the sight of the counter demonstration, uh, counter demonstrators who had organized themselves there as well that they had to be escorted away from the site by Chicago police officers just to keep them safe. And that was the end of it. What, what is important though, um, along the way of all of this was that when the, uh, the lawyers who of course opposed the injunction against uh, the demonstration, took a separate case into the federal district court. So we're now not in the state courts, but in the federal courts. Um, they got a ruling from a district court judge named Bernard Decker about the meaning of the First Amendment and how it applied to this situation. And if you could bear with me, I wanna uh, just uh, quote two sentences of his because I think this helps explain the American approach to speech. And he said, quote, the question then is not whether there are some ideas that are completely unacceptable in a civilized society. Rather, the question is which danger is greater? The danger that allowing the government to punish unacceptable ideas will lead to suppression of ideas that are merely uncomfortable to those in power? or the danger that permitting free debate on such unacceptable ideas will encourage their acceptance rather than discouraging them by revealing their pernicious quality. In other words, what Judge Decker was saying is you answer bad speech with good speech. And the real danger is letting the government decide which, who among us can say what in public. Yeah, great. And and I think that sort of really cuts to the heart of the, the modern day debate, I suppose, about freedom of speech, you know, right. around, uh, you know, things like no platforming and whether really horrible people should be allowed to kind of debate or go on stage at, at certain events. Do you think that the, um, the sort of American attitude to free speech has developed in the 40 years since this incident? I think it has come under additional scrutiny just in the last, say, 10, 20 years, mm -hmm. uh, and understandably so. Uh, one of the things that's pushed the discussion, of course, is the existence of the internet and the way the internet can mobilize so many people so quickly in ways that weren't possible before. 
And I think that in the United States, those of us who really care about speech are giving great thought to this right now. I think um, we still, those, those of us who would call ourselves advocates of free speech, of whom you can tell I am one, uh, would say we still don't think the government should be deciding who can speak when. But might there be some situations where it is not a good idea to have completely free speech? I don't know, we're still dealing with this. And we're dealing also with the question of things that can come along with the exercise of the speech, right? So for example, you saw the situation in Charlottesville, Virginia, a couple of years ago where white supremacists were um, demonstrating carrying weapons, um, being violent. And certainly the American Civil Liberties Union, which had never said anything about demonstrating with weapons, um, has amended its policy to say, we will not support anybody demonstrating with weapons now. So that's one thing. I think another thing that we're all looking at right now is the whole question of the control of speech by private entities like Facebook and Twitter and Reddit and so on. Um, now, of course, there are lots of calls for Facebook, et cetera, to have codes of conduct that will negate some speech and will make it impossible for some people to post on those sites. Okay, so then there's a question of, do we really want big corporations to have the right to control who speaks? That becomes a problem because at least you can say the government is accountable to the people. Uh, officials can be voted out of office. We don't have that same control over private corporations. What's your take on, um, for example, President Trump being, his, his Twitter account being suspended in the wake of the, um, the, the march on the Capitol at the start of the year? Well, you know, I think that comes into the category of incitement. I think what his posts were saying in effect, not in these words, but in effect, get out there and do something violent. Get out there and take over the capital, interfere with the government. I mean, to me, that's treason. I, that's, that's more than incitement. And so, yeah, I would say in that case, I could only support that particular use of the power. At the same time though, let me reiterate, I have big questions about corporations deciding who can speak. Well, Philippa, it's been, it's been really great speaking to you. Um, thanks so much for your time. Okay, thank you. It's been fun for me. Thank you very much, Kit, for that. It was a very interesting interview. Um, I think the question that's on all of our minds is, are we comfortable with the idea that one should be able to protest and rally for any ideology as long as it doesn't incite violence, whatever that may be? What do you think, Kit? I think that's certainly a good place to start from. Um, you know, you obviously want people to be as free to say um, as much as possible you know who who draws that dividing line between what incites violence and what doesn't is the question and ultimately there has to be an arbiter at some point mm -hmm. uh, and then is that the government yes it basically is you know you see in in this country 
things like hate crimes, hate speech, um, which broadly everyone can, or most people probably can agree that, you know, it's a good thing that um, we protect certain people, certain groups that have had uh, kind of forms of, of violence directed to them, um, especially uh, in the past and, and still now, but, you know, where do you draw that line and um, whether that line gets blurred can, uh, can be quite a difficult question, I think. I tend to think that it has to be a direct incitement of violence. Otherwise, too much bias comes in, really. Um, I mean, the obvious one here is the Donald Trump situation. I don't know if any of you has any strong opinions on that. But the interesting thing is now, of course, the arbiter is increasingly not government, it's social media. And I think there have been studies to show that there is a liberal bias in terms of who Twitter tends to ban, um, which is an interesting discussion to have because I think being deplatformed on Twitter is probably more important um, than anything for some of these sort of controversial public and intellectuals and for politicians. So I'd say it has to be direct. And my opinion on the Trump thing is actually maybe it wasn't direct enough, to be honest. I mean, people came in, some of the other speakers on Capitol Hill, were saying that there should be trial by combat and words like that, which is clearly an incitement of violence. I think unless it's direct, I'm not sure um, you can ban it, really. And that liberal bias that you, you mentioned is is quite an interesting one because obviously that there was the kind of right-wing um, social media app Parler that kind of sprung up recently. But then in the wake of the Capitol Hill riots, the um, I think it was Amazon and, and Apple, basically they both kind of... Uh, took it off their their platform so so basically the app died overnight and I think that's I mean while we might broadly agree that most of what is shared on that app is probably quite you know unpleasant or a large part of it anyway the fact that these kind of big tech companies can just do that and just wipe out a section of public discourse like that is is quite alarming I think. And alarming also because it seems like it's likely to push it into the the underworld and then it's going to fester in those spaces. Whereas hopefully we like to operate on the assumption that freedom of speech should lead to free and open debate um, and that should lead to a point of clarity. Maybe that's um, idealistic, I don't know. But I think I think that's an ideal worth shooting for. That's an interesting point. And it's like a very, like I think, world-war discussion about, you know, whether... You know, think you bring them into the light. Whether you know people can see how ridiculous some of these things are, and I, I'm sure it can be the case. But then, I think I think that an example that's often cited is um, well, after um, Nick Griffin, the leader of the British National Party, was invited onto Question Time, his um, familiarity definitely went through the roof, and he was much better known by the British public. So yeah, it's a difficult one to to know whether it does have that effect. I think mm. I'm so confused by the by the behavior of the social media giants towards people on their on their sites i genuinely don't know what to think the thing i've read i think which ironically on twitter um which clarified it to me more than anything was a tweet by the old ft editor leonel barber i've just found it it's on january 9th and he wrote um the trump twitter ban and facebook's belated clampdown finally settles it platforms are publishers with all the responsibilities that come along with that privilege so that to me i found helpful because it's like if they are able to choose who says what when and how someone then needs to to edit every bit of material that's published on that site too because they're not an independent source whoever runs twitter and facebook has an agenda 
and that agenda is now being played out and that's that's dangerous i just think it's it's almost it's almost too late i i I think we are we are captured by a sort of you know by by these companies like alex said like all public discourse basically runs on like a few of a few of these different platforms they are privately owned they have um obviously they have public shareholders but that's the extent to which they're accountable. So really, if I think the root of it is like, if you want to be, have some say on 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 what uh, public discourse is in the US or you know worldwide, so you have to invest in these companies uh, mm. and go go along to the annual general meeting and you know shout at the senior executives. Mm. Uh, maybe one I think we could uh, finish on a closed question for both of you. Do you think one of the biggest um, one of the biggest political failures of all time has been for the politicians of this generation to allow the situation to arise and exist the way it does now. I, I think that's harsh in a way and that I don't think anyone really could have foreseen it. Maybe that's my ignorance, but I think it's one of those things that it developed and very few people were aware of what was developing and it's all happened so fast and we've all kind of been sucked in so fast that I would feel, I'd feel harsh for me to, to, to call it a crime. But, but yeah. well, and, and the fact that no one noticed across the board. I mean, I wouldn't really level any blame towards any individual, but I think it seems like we're going in the direction that it was a failure of humanity's sort of alertness to the situation, definitely. Well, I think that's pretty much all on that topic. Well, there's definitely more to discuss, but I think that's all you have time for. Um, thank you very much, guys. And thank you, everyone, for listening as well. And we'll see you next week. Cheers. 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 Nice.